Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Happy Friday, guys. Molly here with a few announcements. There's still time to register for Dr. Vera Tarman's I'm Sweet Enough Challenge. Are you ready to quit sugar? Commit or recommit to the September sugar-free 30-day challenge. Eliminate all added and processed sugars from your diet between September 1st to September 30th. Register for the September challenge today by going to foodjunkiespodcast.com. And yes, I realize that it's mid-September, but go do it anyway. Don't forget, Dr. Vera Tarman's Sugar and Food Addiction course with Dr. Eric Westman's Adapt Your Life Academy will be live at the end of this month. So head over to the Adapt Your Life Academy website and get on the wait list today. Check the show notes or the Food Junkies podcast website also has a link. I also want to take a moment to remind you guys that I am working on my latest passion project, YouTube. If you haven't heard, I'm seeking volunteers willing to share their stories on the Sweet Sobriety YouTube channel to decrease stigma and increase awareness around food addiction. Day one or day a million and one. We want to hear your story. If you're interested, please check the show notes for more information or again, head over to the Food Junkies website and follow the link. Okay, today Vera did a solo interview with Dr. Carr. So you're going to hear Dr. Carr's personal and professional journey. You're going to hear about bioidentical hormones. They talked about vitamin and mineral deficiency and therapeutic supplementation, protein and fats, ketones and glucose, fasting and time-restricted eating, what to expect when working with Dr. Carr, sugar and mood, what's next, and our signature question. Welcome, Dr. Carr. Hello there. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your host today. And today I speak with Dr. Shabnam Daskar. Dr. Daskar is a consultant in functional and metabolic medicine. Her specialty is menopausal women, along with the hormonal changes that occur with aging. Starting off as an MD gynecologist working in India, she came to Canada to specialize in optimal aging, especially as it regards to the brain, hormones, and gut health. We at Food Junkies Podcast are keen to get her take on various food addiction issues. For example, how does quitting sugar help menopause? How does sugar affect menopause? How does menopause possibly affect our taste for sugar? And in as far as she treats overeating and food addiction, what the approach is. So welcome, Ashabnan. Thank you, Dr. Tarman. It's my honor and privilege to be here with you on your podcast. And at the very beginning, I must thank you and your wonderful work. I had no idea about food addiction until I came across your work. And thank you so much for doing that. Oh, good. Thank you. Well, one of the things I'm really delighted in is um, finding uh, um, healthcare professionals, because this is an issue that creeps up in so many uh, various uh, parts of medicine and alternative medicine. And I am happy that you're open to this. So hopefully we'll talk about that. But let's start with you and your story. So how did you get into the area of functional medicine and specifically as it relates to aging and anti-aging? And I, I understand that you've started in India and then you came here. Tell us a little bit as much as you're willing about your story. Oh, thank you. So this story goes back a long time ago. So I was practicing as an OBGY in India, in Mumbai. And I heard a doctor from the U.S. Uh, come and talk about bioidentical hormones. So this was a long time ago. And I thought, as an OBGYN, I had never heard of bioidenticals before. So anyway, to cut a very long story short, I decided to find out more. And I did a fellowship from the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine. So that was, I, I was still in India at that time. Okay, then few years down the, let me interrupt you. What is biochemical or bioidentical hormones? Just for okay. people who don't know. Okay, so this is, we are veering a little bit off topic into hormones now. So bioidentical hormone therapies, essentially, we are all familiar with hormone therapy. So yeah. when we say bioidentical, what it means is the hormone replacement therapy that is being used 
the chemical structure of those hormones are the same as our what our body makes so for example our body makes three different types of estrogens and the the most potent estrogen is the e2 so the e2 that our body makes has a certain chemical structure and the hormone replacement therapy and i am not going into the pharmaceuticals and the compounded and all that maybe we'll have a different conversation about that but the ones that are chemically the same structure as what our body makes are called bioidenticals now few years ago we had a lot of conversations around the women's health initiative study where hormone therapies were supposed to be bad for yeah. us and all those Yeah. yeah but that hormone therapy were oral estrogens and in terms of the structure that was a very different estrogen that is not the hormone therapy we talk about today so today it is mostly estrogen on the skin as a cream or a patch and more importantly the progesterone component it was not progesterone that was being used in the women's health initiative study but the progesterone that we use today is the oral micronized progesterone which is again bioidentical to what our body makes so that is basically a very short description of okay. bioidenticals okay thank you so now please go back to your introduction i i, I okay thank you so anyway then i did the fellowship and i realized this is a very different way of practicing medicine because as an obgy i was used to looking at only the uterus tubes and ovaries and i forgot that the body is interconnected to everything else like we did not think of the brain or the gut or other you know heart disease risk in women none of that so over the years and of course we had an, i had no nutrition education at all so as a part of the, my functional medicine training i got to know about food and nutrition and micronutrients and supplementation and a whole lot of other things which i thought oh this makes sense and that is where my journey has continued so a few years ago uh, we moved to canada because my husband moved here and now i have an online health and wellness company and i work with a physician in alberta and uh, from this year i decided to focus on the brain and that is why dr tarman your work is so important because very often we forget about the brain when we talk about food and nutrition and particularly i think food addiction Uh-huh. so that is not something that is not a, not a conversation that is very common right i would imagine that it's mainly around um, insulin uh, hyperinsulinemia and metabolic syndrome not so much about the brain yeah yes i know we forget about the brain yeah. so uh, then moving yes. forward on my journey a few years ago i was at dr jason fung and megan ramos's clinic in toronto and i was very excited oh here in my own country in canada i can go and you know be an observer at a clinic so that is when i was introduced to time restricted eating intermittent fasting and those few days at their clinic it, it just blew my mind because i thought oh this is a strategy that i can use for most of my patients are in india because you know insulin resistance being a uh, pre diabetic having diabetes pcos and as you know pcos is intimately related to a lot of mental health challenges as well ah. and i am beginning to suspect dr tarman many of my patients do have food addiction and so after listening to you and you know reading your book i decided okay i'm going to start screening them using the yale questionnaire that you referred to yeah and in my you know very small practice i already found a few patients who had food addiction and there was no way i would have thought of food addiction if i wasn't uh, if i hadn't read your book so thank you once again oh wow yeah thank you yeah and i'm thinking maybe there are more patients i have missed out and i should reach out to them now and say you know i have no more knowledge now <laughs> than i did before so going back to how food and brain and all the things that you talk about yeah. one of the things and again dr tarman i'd love to know what you think because i don't think there is a lot of research in that because what we look at as modern food and sometimes i don't even think that is food it's like food like substances mm-hmm. what they lack is a lot of the micronutrients which are very important for brain function and uh, dr bonnie kaplan and dr julia rucklidge have written a book called the, the better brain so they researched these micronutrients 
And my suspicion is a lot of the challenges people have with food and maybe even food addiction could be a micronutrient deficiency. And I don't think uh, we have any data yet. So Dr. Tamman, what do you think about that? Well, I, I've had uh, a couple of other people on the podcast allude to that. And uh, I mean, that's not my area. So I'm focusing more on the whole addiction profile. But mm. I'm curious, when you're talking about micronutrients that may be deficient, can you give a couple of examples for our listeners? Like, what do you mean? Deficiency okay. in calcium, deficiency in vitamin D, or something even more specific? Oh, there, there are so many. So Again, going back to Dr. Bonnie Kaplan's work in her book, she has some some of these beautiful uh, images. So, for example, mitochondria, you know, bioenergetics is one of the areas we focus on. So, basically, what do mitochondria do? They are the energy sources for every cell in our body. So, whether we are looking at the brain function, whether we are looking at hormones, whether we are looking at metabolism, right. everything is related to energy production and the brain despite being just 2% of our body weight, it uses up about 20% of energy supplies. So it's a big energy hog. Now for the mitochondria to produce adequate energy, there are more than 12 or 13 different nutrients. So what are some of those nutrients? Yes, yes. Iron is a big one, vitamin B12, and the whole B complex actually, B1, B6, all of them. Yes. Then zinc, selenium, coenzyme Q10. Then there are a whole lot of the other ones, which are all the different vitamins as well, vitamin C, vitamin D. All of them are involved in generating energy. The challenge comes, Dr. Tarman, is there is no simple way of testing. Like there is no one simple blood test we do on healthcare. And we can test for some of them, but not all of them. Like vitamin B12, iron, vitamin D3. And again, in Ontario, you test for D3. In Alberta, we can't test for through healthcare for D3. It has to be specialized testing. Zinc, selenium, we can test. But some of the other ones... And we can't test. Magnesium is another big one because a serum magnesium does not tell us the tissue levels. So my perspective is rather than, you know, asking a patient to spend a lot of money on very fancy, expensive testing, which may not even tell us about the tissue levels and particularly the brain levels, because we'd have to do a spinal tap to know what's going on there. So my perspective is how about we look at, you know, therapeutic supplementation with nutrients first. Yes, food is extremely important. I'm not denying that. But the fact is, sometimes food alone is not enough for everyone. Even a healthy food, like not the food products that we're talking about. No, even even real food. Okay. So for example, I always give the example of magnesium because magnesium is involved with 400, 500 different enzymatic reactions in the body. And as someone in mental health, I know you know the how important magnesium is yes. for a lot of the, you know, brain functions and particularly, you know, the anxiety issues, sleep issues. Yes. Now, the problem with getting magnesium from only food is just for people to get just the basic RDA. So the recommended dietary allowance, which were created many years ago. And as Dr. Bonnie Kaplan says, back then they were not thinking of brain health. They were mostly formulated to prevent deficiency diseases like scurvy and beriberi and rickets. And we don't see those conditions very commonly now. So those RDAs, number one, were not created for, you know, health challenges. So that is where the therapeutic part of it comes. So going back to the magnesium, just for people to get the bare minimum, the RDA, they would need, for example, if they're taking spinach, they would need to eat eight cups of spinach every day. Uh-huh. Now, Dr. Tarman, I don't know about your patient. I myself can never eat eight cups of yeah. spinach every day. Uh-huh. So that's just one example. Now, the next comes about absorption. And then in particularly people who have a lot of health challenges, their requirement may be much higher. So for them to get the higher requirement, there is no way other than supplementation. Right. Another big one is omega-3 fatty acids. So yeah. there again, therapeutic supplementation. No one is going to eat get enough from only food, even if they eat salmon every day. Now, the challenge is 
Health Canada recommends that we should not eat fatty fish for more than two times a week because yeah. of all the toxins and everything. Two times of salmon, even if it is wild caught, will not give us enough omega-3s. And then there are a lot of people who have restricted diets, like some are vegan, some are vegetarians. Yeah. They don't have a good source of omega-3. And you know how important omega-3 is for brain function. Yes. So that is where, you know, therapeutic supplementation is very important. Yes, it is important to eat very good quality, real food. Yes. But for a lot of people, that is a good place to start, but that may not be enough. Do you publish on your website? Is there like a sort of bare basics list of things that especially women postmenopausal or around menopause should be taking that, that is accessible to people? Oh, yes. So definitely the top five supplements that me and functional medicine doctors like me recommend for almost everyone. One is a very high quality multivitamin, which contains a whole lot of minerals and nutrients in it. Because again, even if we eat a lot of fruit and vegetables, we won't be getting enough. Yes. Next comes uh, magnesium. Magnesium is one of my favorites. Yes. And the best way to know how much magnesium someone needs is what we call take magnesium to bowel tolerance. So a blood test is not going to tell us how much magnesium we need because serum magnesium is not the right test. So supposing I take three capsules at bedtime and then, you know, I'm fine. I don't have diarrhea. But when I increase it to four capsules, I realize that I have diarrhea. So that is my body telling me that's too much magnesium. Yeah. Okay. Then I just reduce it to the level at which there is no diarrhea. So magnesium is the other one. Vitamin D is a very big one because... I mean, for someone like me with my skin color, even if I spend the entire summer on the deck with, you know, very few, very little clothes, I'll not make enough vitamin D. Right. So yeah. that is the other one. The th- fourth is the omega-3 fatty acid. And ideally, I would like to measure omega-3 levels because... As you know, people have different levels. Some have more EPA, some more DHA. And particularly when it comes to mood issues, some people may need a higher level of DHA than EPA. So if we test it, then it's a much better. But then even if we don't test, taking a very basic level of 3,000 milligram of uh, omega-3 fatty acids, which contain EPA and DHA. Now, if they have problems like high triglycerides, those will need a higher level of omega-3. There's a prescription product available. I'm not going into that, but just a basic omega-3 supplement, even if they eat eat fish every day and, or even twice a week, even they would need one. Okay. And the fifth one is a high-quality probiotic. Ah, okay. So probiotic, now the important part is, Dr. Taman, probiotic or any of these supplements are not independent of good food. Like, you know, someone may think, okay, I'm going to continue eating all these sugary food and food that becomes sugar, like all the the processed carbohydrates, and I'm just going to take a whole bunch of supplements. That is not going to work as well. Like, we cannot out-supplement poor quality food. I was just going to ask you, could the poor quality food actually deter or be detrimental to your absorption of these five items you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So... Definitely, ideally, we look at first healing the gut. But the other thing is, Dr. Tarman, what I as a practitioner I do is I individualize my approach. So let us say someone comes to me who has a lot of, you know, then the other area that we need to remember is there are some medications which cause nutrient depletions. Mm. One of the commonest is metformin because I have a lot of patients who have PCOS. Uh-huh. So young women with PCOS. And in India, many of them are vegetarians, so they don't get enough B12 anyway. And metformin depletes of you know people of B12. Yeah. So these people are not going to, you know, obviously if they are in a depleted state, they're not going to feel very good about making the difficult food changes. Yes. So how I approach them is, see, this is what you would need to do 
But where would you like to start? So I'm also trained as a tiny habits coach, which is a behavior design method. And I, I'm not going into that now. Yeah. But it, it's like, where would you like to start? And yeah. Dr. Darwin, you're a physician, you know. And as a physician, I never used to ask my patients, where would you like to start? This is this is a list of all the medications you need to take. The yeah. other tests you need to do, just go ahead and do them. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. 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 And as an OBGYN, I remember patients would come back and say, doctor, I don't like this liquid iron. It tastes terrible. And I think, oh, like, what's there to taste? You know, uh, it's a medicine. They have it. Anyway, so from there to, so some patients are open to making difficult food changes, getting rid of the inflammatory food, the sugary food, the things, the food that make more sugar. But not everyone is in that stage. Some may say that I'm going to do the more difficult things when I start feeling a little better. So in them, I usually start with supplementation as well as the food changes. But some of them find it easier to take supplements than to make the more difficult food changes. They may make some changes, but not all. Okay. And when it comes to food changes, one of the things that I like to focus on is I ask them to prioritize proteins. So rather than, because usually, Dr. Traman, the conversation is always, don't eat this, don't eat that, don't, don't, don't. Yes. Instead of the don'ts, I tell them, let us focus on what you can eat. You know, how about starting with more protein? And you mentioned insulin and blood glucose. So eating more protein would give their blood glucose levels, make it more like, you know, more balanced and not not go up and down dramatically. Can I just interrupt? So are you are you suggesting a low carb, like almost keto plan or what about your vegan uh, patients and your vegetarians? What do they do? How do they get their protein? So Dr. Darwin, that's a very important question. So a lot of my patients are vegetarians and in India, most of them are mostly grainitarian. So they eat a lot of grains. It's like the flatbread, the roti rice and things like that. And all of them struggle with getting adequate protein. So that is where a supplement, the supplementation comes in again, Mm -hmm. because one of their major sources of, you know, they think it's a good source of protein is lentils and beans. Yes. Unfortunately, lentils and beans don't contain adequate protein and the right quality protein. And all of them come with a lot of carbohydrates. So I deal with a population who are very severely insulin resistant. Yes. And as you know, personal carbohydrate threshold differs. So some people, the tolerance may be just for 20 grams of carbs a day. And that is where you talked about the ketogenic diet. Mm -hmm. So the ketogenic diet basically is... 20 grams or less of carbs a day. And you have worked with Dr. Eric Westman, so you know that is, and a lot of people make this mistake in thinking that a ketogenic diet is a high-fat diet. No, the the most important part is the carbohydrate restriction in that. And as you rightly pointed out, it's very difficult for vegetarians to go below that level and get into ketosis. That is where I found that using a time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting helps them to get into that space. Just hold, hold, pause there for a second. How else would they get more protein? Is that what you're talking about, the supplementation? Yes. And, I'm going are you talking like powders now or what are you talking about? So, yes. So for my vegetarian patients, vegetarians and vegans as well, most of the time they realize it themselves that they cannot get adequate protein without a protein supplement. While it is, I would love them to get everything from only food, uh-huh. but what ends up happening is in the food, they get a lot of carbohydrates as well. And I'm trying to restrict the carbohydrates because of all these other things. Yeah. So yes, Dr. Raman, you're right. For vegetarians and vegans, Without supplementation, it is very difficult for them to get many of these results. That and the need. supplementation is in the way of protein powders? Like, what, what do you mean yes. when you say protein yes. supplementation? Protein powders for them. Okay, okay, good. All right, and so then you were saying about the intermittent fasting. Yes, so that is where I, I realized this was, again, my moment of epiphany, so to say, yeah. <laughs> sitting at Dr. Fung's clinic, that this is something I can get my vegetarian patients to do because... 
it's practically impossible to reduce carbohydrate intake to less than 20 grams. And if they don't do that, they don't get the results because they don't get into nutritional ketosis. But adding the TRE component, and here, you know, you and I, I think we've talked on on our email exchange, we talked about, do we call it time-restricted eating? Do we call it intermittent fasting? Mm -hmm. So here, I just want to, you know, these are two terms. So some people... Explain, yes. Yeah. So the thing is, Intermittent fasting as a, as a term has become very popular. In everywhere, you'll find people talking about intermittent fasting. But the fact is, a lot of people don't like the term fasting because it gives them feelings of deprivation and, you know, it's not something I do. That's how what I thought. But time-restricted eating is essentially, and again, there are no specific definitions for both, but essentially it is eating in shortened windows of time. So the absolute bare minimum of TRE would be 12 hours. And Dr. Tarman, way back, even when I was growing up as a kid in India, we did not eat throughout the day and night like we do now. I know, yes. Yeah, so the 12 hours is the bare minimum of overnight fasting is easier because half the time is spent asleep, so it's easier to do that. And lots of studies have shown that people don't really... They think they don't eat all the time, but when they were actually tracked, they found out that people were eating like 12 to 14, you know, 14 hours a day, 15 hours a day. Yeah. So time-restricted eating, the easiest way is to start off with a 12-12 of overnight fast. Then the next thing I recommend to them is trying to push the morning meal, the first meal of the day. So breakfast doesn't have to be at 8 a.m. Uh-huh. It can be a brunch. So if they can start slowly pushing the fasting interval, and again, there there is no such rule that today if they've done 12 hours, the next week they should do 14. I let them choose what works easier for them. But it's important to track because it's very easy to go over the fasting you know, window. Okay. And then there are certain things that they can have, like black tea, black coffee, no whitener, no sugar, no sweetener. Those can, they can have during the fasting time. Water is fine. Water with some lemon, those are all okay. So that is, now what happens interestingly, Dr. Tarman, is many of my patients want, want to lose weight. And what they found is using time-restricted eating and increasing the fasting interval, number one, takes away their hunger. So that is where you had asked me, what is the difference between starvation and fasting? Yes. So starvation, number one, is unplanned. So if you think of starvation, it's like, you know, back in the days when they had these famines and during the war, the Dutch winter hunger studies, a lot of studies based on that. Those were people had no idea that this was going to be a horrible time in life, a lot of stress, war and all those things. So that is a very, and there is a lot of uncertainty. And as you know, our brains don't do very well with uncertainties. We like to predict. Mm -hmm. So starvation is number one, unpredictable and a lot of stress involved and uncertain. We don't know when the starvation is going to end because we don't know when the food supply is going to be available. Versus in fasting, it is planned. So I have decided I am not going to eat between this time and this time of the day. And I know that if I feel unwell, if I feel like I'm ready, I'm going to keel over, I can always interrupt my fast because I have food readily available. And there are lots of studies which showed the difference between the two. Because one of the challenges, Dr. Tarman, I'm sure you've seen in your patients is when they go into a a calorie-restricted diet and people are not looking at the quality of the food, it's just the number of calories that are reduced for weight loss. Yes, they do work for a short term, but the biggest challenge people have is they feel hungry all the time. Yes. And it's like using motivation and will force and both those things are very blunt tools. Okay. So those don't work as well versus using time-restricted eating or increasing the fasting interval. So the commonest fasting interval for most of my patients by the time they have get, gotten comfortable doing it is what we call 16-8. So 16 hours of fasting and they eat their meals in the eight hours. Now, during those eight hours, what we would like to happen is they just restricted to two or three meals, no snacking. 
<laughs> but then again, it's different things for different people. So why do they snack? Do they feel hungry? Then the solutions are different. Then we need to focus on what did they eat in the last meal? Did they eat a lot of carbohydrates and not enough protein and good fat? Then that would make them hungry. <laughs> versus is it that just a habit like you know i drink tea and with my tea i need some cookies uh-huh. most of the time it's not hunger it's a habit or it's that i get the munchies my patients will tell me doctor i just feel like eating something <laughs> you know? yeah so those are the different ways of you know so one is the difference between starvation and fasting one is planned and the other one is unplanned and my sense from what you're saying and what people say who say that it works for them is that when they're intermittent fasting they're not hungry in that fasting period of yeah. time and what i see happening uh, and i'm actually somebody that in the food addiction world i really caution about using intermittent fasting early days because it will often trigger a binge uh, yes. restricted and then binge cycle because the person has got a whole history of dieting yes. restricting and depriving yes. and, and it ends up becoming a trigger for yes. um, food addiction uh, behavior. So yeah. having the awareness that you don't want to be hungry is a key piece. Yes. I, yeah. Anyway, did you want to comment on that somehow? Yeah, th- that's a very important observation, Dr. Darwin, because, you know, people read intermittent fasting is good for this, good for that. And yeah. they feel that everyone should do that and they can just do it without, you know, the guidance of someone who knows what is going on. So mm-hmm. few people should not do intermittent fast longer fasts particularly one is people who are already very underweight or those with anorexia nervosa or bulimia any of the food uh, in the eating disorder world and i would also say probably people with food addictions because it might you know it might just backfire yes that's my that's my worry yes yes so these these are the people who so what i recommend to my patients is if if i find that they are struggling with increasing the fasting interval i tell them forget about fasting and everything let's first focus on your food quality so start eating better quality food first yeah. once you have you know overcome some of your hunger and all those feelings because the other important factor dr tarman is when we look at carbohydrates protein and fat so protein and fat many of them are essential nutrients so protein particularly it's made of amino acids and there are some amino acids which are essential amino acids meaning our body does not have the ability to make them so we de- do need to have them either in food or as you know supplementation and fats like omega 3 fatty acids are also essential fatty acids mm-hmm. our bodies can't make them but there are no essential carbohydrates right so sometimes i feel many of the challenges people go through mental health challenges or maybe even addictions could be the brain's way of telling you you need to eat some of these food which i am missing because i'm not getting them enough of them and i'm not able to make all the nutrients the neurotransmitters the hormones and all those things that are going to keep you running you know so those are the people and again the other area is pregnant women but pregnant women can definitely stick to a 12 12 mm-hmm. though i don't think tre has been tried on pregnant women but 12 12 was the way we were eating always Yes. Yeah. This eating continuously day and night this is a new way of living. So you you were saying earlier on so just finish that thought please. You were saying that uh your vegan vegetarians they couldn't treat their metabolic syndrome because there were simply too many carbohydrates yes. in their diet. And so how would intermittent fasting correct that? I mean, I appreciate how it would in the in the short term, but at some point they're not going to fast prolonged fast anyway for a lot forever. So how can no. you prevent how can you prevent them from restarting their metabolic syndrome when they're back to their uh, regular vegetarian diet? Okay, that's a great question, Dr. Darman. So one of the again it depends on most of them have a have you know excess body fat that they'd like to lose. Right. And again it depends how much each of them none of them are ever happy at whatever level they are at even if you think that that's okay. Yes. So for weight loss for a short span of time they may need longer fasting intervals and again 
this is not to be done without supervision. Because Thank you for it's noting a, that. Everybody here, yeah. you, you do this with supervision. With supervision, not yeah. like, oh, I'm by myself, I'm going to do a seven-day fast. Uh-huh. No, that is not what we recommend. So one is they may need longer fasting for a short span of time. And most of them, once they start doing TRE, they do get comfortable not eating for like 14 hours, 16 hours. They are very comfortable doing that. So it, it does happen. I know many of my patients, they have lost some weight. They've done, you know, longer fasts, but over a period of a few years and then particularly with COVID and, you know, spending a lot of time at home and eating, you know, food that they didn't want to eat, they have ended up gaining weight. So, and the solution for that again is longer fast. And like I said, there is no hard and fast rule. Maybe if they are comfortable doing a 16-8 every day, they are quite comfortable doing that. They don't, they can't, like I've been doing that and now I can't eat breakfast. There was a time I used to believe in breakfast a lot and having breakfast at eight o'clock in the morning was important. Now I can't, I feel sick if I have breakfast. So next they can slowly change to having, you know, doing a 24-hour fast. So essentially they eat one meal a day, a good meal, which is not like a small little salad or something. It has to have good protein and everything. And then they can start on 24 hours thrice a week. They find that quite easy. And again, depends on what is going on in their life. It should match like it should match their life. It's not like I'm not going to the park to my friend's birthday party because I'm fasting today. <laughs> don't become the, you know, don't become the wet blanket in your group. So they sometimes to adjust, make those adjustments, they do need to do you know, longer fasts uh, more times in a year, depending on what's going on. And of course, food quality, it's like, I usually ask them, what do you think happened? What got in your way? Then they'll say, oh, doctor, I started eating more carbohydrates than I was eating before. And I said, what, like, what changed? I started living with some friends who were like not eating the same way as I do. So these food were like in front of me and I couldn't resist them. I said, okay, so that's good. You know why that has happened. And so we can kind of troubleshoot our way backwards. So, okay, what do you think you can do? Things like that. So, yes, and that's quite a struggle for a lot of my vegetarian patients. So, and for others as well. <laughs> you think it's possible then once they their metabolic syndrome is addressed with your fasting approach that they can then resume their meta like without introducing prolonged fast for the rest of their life that they can still maintain metabolic health and uh, no I don't think so in my patients I have not seen that happening it's not like it's a one time fix uh, yes. because metabolic syndrome is a lifelong problem if I'm looking at PCOS Okay. Even menopausal women <clears throat> women are still insulin resistant. Yes. It's just that they don't have some of the other features of fertility and all those problems. Okay. But the insulin resistance is still there. Yes. And we have not done a permanent fix. It's like a low-carb diet is going to be something that they'll probably have to do lifelong. Okay, so if they're if a person's vegetarian, which essentially means they're eating higher carbs than 20, 20 yeah. grams, they will probably have to introduce some sort of intermittent fasting regime to maintain metabolic health. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Okay. Now, now, if I can just say on a personal level, if I were to think of doing a fast for a day, that would terrify me. I mean, yes. One of the things that I, I teach, and please tell me if I'm correct, I, I think I am, is that a lot of what intermittent fasting can do, you can achieve with a two or three meal a day plan, providing it's there's no meals in between. You can achieve as long as the food is is good food and it's not food products. Am I not correct in that? Yes, Dr. Tarman, you're correct. No, this is not. uh, So the thing is, again, it's individualized. Like for a lot of people, what I suggest is depending on what is going on with them. If they are someone who is eating three meals and snacking another three, four times in a day, maybe the first thing to focus on is how to stop the snacking. Yes. So it's again going backwards. Why do you snack? Are you hungry? If you're hungry, then you need to eat good quality, better food in your last meal so that you don't feel hungry. Because the other problem with, you know, eating more of carbohydrates and less of protein and fat is something called relative hypoglycemia. This is, again, something I became aware recently. So some people, they don't have diabetes, but they have a dramatic fall in their blood glucose levels because they're eating a lot of carbohydrates. Okay. Versus protein and good quality fat keep us satiated longer. 
Yes. So if they are dealing with a lot of, you know, what we call the hangry monster, you're hungry, angry, everything, you know, two yeah. hours after a meal and you're wondering what is going on, then that is one area where you eat, need to eat more protein. So if they are someone who's snacking multiple times, then it's important to first focus on reducing or stopping the snacking mm -hmm. and eating, like you said, good quality meals. And then maybe if they do need, and again, it would depend on what is going on. So some people like the feeling, the cognitive, you know, enhancement that getting into nutritional ketosis does for them because ketones are a very good quality uh, fuel for the brain. And many, many of my patients will say, I know I don't need, really need to fast because I'm not looking at losing weight, but I love how it makes me feel. <laughs> So doing that, you know, there is no one hard and fast rule. If eating two meals or three meals in a day and not snacking numerous times, because there has there is a lot of myth still out there where, you know, people will tell them you need to eat six times in a day to lose weight. Yes. That is not yes. true. But you can eat three meals a day and be in metabolic yes. health, right? Yes, but yeah. it would depend on what you're eating. Yes, of and course. Of course uh, the other thing is when someone is eating. So for yes. a lot of people, they're eating late at 12 night. And 12. Yeah, they're eating late in the evening when insulin sensitivity is much lower, uh -huh. and they're eating high carbohydrate food, and then they're trying to fall asleep two hours after that, and they can't fall asleep. So it, it's like a vicious cycle that's yes. going on. Now, you know, you're one of the first people I've heard uh, that I've interviewed that's actually taught, brought up the concept of the, the, the mental enhancement with ketones. Can you elaborate a little bit about that versus just a, uh, I'm not talking about glucose, like a high yeah. of, of sugar, but of a regular non-refined carbohydrate food plan, like vegetables. What's the difference? What is it about ketone enhancement that makes people? Thank you. That? Thank you, Dr. Tarman. So basically our bodies run on different fuels. So ketones are are one of the fuels and the other fuel is glucose and we know that the brain works on glucose very well but if you look back to our hunter-gatherer ancestors they had times of you know throughout the year when food was not easily available so they ate what they caught or what they could hunt yes so obviously our brains are designed to switch fuels so there are times when our brains can use ketones if the food is not readily available, whereas now like we are just a phone call away or, or an app away <laughs> to get food, right? even if you don't have at home. So uh, what it turns out, there, there's a lot of research supporting that, that ketones are a cleaner fuel in terms of, let us say, using an electric vehicle versus using a gasoline vehicle. They don't produce as much of oxidative stress. So that is one thing. And another area, which is so brain health, is one of my areas of focus. And this is, again, based on the research of Dr. Stephen Cunane from the University of Sherbrooke. So what he did is he used, actually, he actually used exogenous ketones. But what he found in his research is he put uh, people with mild cognitive impairment. So this is pre-Alzheimer's. Yes. He got them onto an MRI machine and, of course, some very fancy testing. I can't remember the name now. What he found is these people with MCI, they had lost their ability to use glucose as a fuel to get the brain to function. And interestingly, going back to the hormone question, this is, again, based on the research of Dr. Lisa Moscone. She's written a book. What she did is she put women in the perimenopausal period yeah. through functional MRI machines, and she found the same problem, that women started losing their ability to use glucose as a fuel for the brain. And so instead it becomes storage, which essentially is the, the, the uh, visceral obesity that yeah. seems to be pronounced more postmenopausal. Or yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it, one thing is estrogen has a huge role in insulin resistance. So yes. women who are already insulin resistance, resistant, they get worse after menopause. Yeah, that's but the brain that seems to be true. Yeah. And the other thing is, Dr. Tarman, some people consider Alzheimer's to be type three diabetes. So it is diabetes of the brain. Mm -hmm. So essentially what what is happening, this is Dr. Cunin's research, that the brain loses ability to use glucose as a fuel, but it still retains the ability to use ketones as a fuel. Uh -huh. So though, you know, younger people may not be in MCI or any of that, 
The other interesting thing is, you know, Alzheimer's, as you know, starts 20 to 30 years before someone actually develops the symptoms. Uh-huh. And a lot of new research is coming up where they found that when people in their young, in younger age, like middle age or in their 20s, had higher than normal levels of glucose, they, down the line, many of them had higher risk for Alzheimer's. Uh-huh. So that 20 to 30 years of before the symptoms develop, and as we know, there's no treatment for Alzheimer's yet, mm-hmm. that is a time when there are a lot of things we could do. So getting into nutritional ketosis is probably one of the, that is one of the very wonderful brain health strategies that we talk about. So a lot of people love how like they feel, they'll come and tell me, I feel my thinking is sharper, my focus is better, and I want that feeling, you know, so that is why I'm fasting. So so, so just to sort of uh, jump on what you're saying in terms of Alzheimer's or pre-Alzheimer's, it sounds like um, if you're eating a, a standard American diet, you're setting the stage for Alzheimer's, this concept of diet. Yeah. you know type 3 diabetes in the brain yeah. so if you start eating either through fasting or just eating an unrefined carbohydrates yeah. you can retard that process but oh, if you actually go into ketosis it's not that you can repair that damage but you can enhance what you've got yes absolutely and the other thing when it comes to mci and uh, even a little advanced stages, what they found is if many of these people are not in a position to do a ketogenic diet or, you know, time-restricted eating, right. this is again Dr. Cunane's research where he used exogenous ketones. So again, a ketone supplement, which contains some medium-chain triglycerides, the C8, C10. His research is really fascinating. Yeah. It's available easily on Google. So what they found is when they gave them this ketone drink, their symptoms were better, the MCI wow. symptoms, and the brain glucose, the brain fuel utilization was also different. So, so are you actually saying that I could go to a, a website somewhere and purchase this and actually, I, I don't have Alzheimer's as far as I'm aware. No, you don't. <laughs> I could actually cognitively enhance what I've got by this exogenous ketone drink? Yes, that is what, I mean, I have personally not tried that. But, up. <laughs> and even for my patients, Sometimes it's like, you know, someone will come, uh, will ask me, you know, my father, I think, is is having cognitive decline. What do you think I can do? So I said, okay, this is one thing you can try because for Uh cognitive decline, there is no, you know, treatment. So if he's willing to take a supplement or, you know, make these food changes, there are so many other things that can be done. So it's like, you know, throwing everything in the kitchen sink at some, some, something like that. How quickly would you expect to see a response? I want to get to the overeating piece next, but how quickly could you get a response if you were to do like the intermittent fasting with a, for a cognitive enhancement purpose? Are we talking like days or more like months? No, some people experience those benefits. And again, I think the underlying problem is how insulin resistant they are. Uh, yes. If they are more severely resistant, then the effects take a little longer. And again, the other important factor is age. So younger people see the results faster okay? because I guess they have more metabolic resilience than older people, menopausal women. Some people have see the difference in just, uh, you know, one or two weeks of regularly doing TRE. And most of my patients say that they find TRE way easier than making some of the other dietary changes. Okay. All right. So, So, yeah. Now I want to get to the overeating thing. Tell me if you experienced this too. One of the things that I've seen in the food addiction world is that people start off with um, an addiction to, for sure, sugar, for sure, flour, like basically Mm -hmm. refined carbohydrates. And over time, especially if they continue to eat that stuff, more and more gets filled in the addiction pop. They can't do do dairy anymore. They can't do grains anymore. When Mm -hmm. they could do grains 10 years ago, now they can't. And that often the number one pivotal point is menopause, where they were fine before. Now those carbohydrates are just simply too much. Have you had that experience too? Yes. So a lot of uh, women, now the problem with menopause is, and it's like the estrogens are so important for, uh, you know, metabolic health because there are estrogen receptors in the pancreas and the insulin secretion and insulin sensitivity. Yes. Interestingly, if women were already insulin resistant before they went into menopause, those women have a bigger struggle. So they already struggle more than, you know, someone who doesn't have insulin resistance from before, but it's only the 
estrogen deficiencies after menopause that is causing a bigger problem. But yes, what you said is so true that it kind of, it becomes worse as time goes. Another important area that we address is uh, food sensitivity. Okay. Gluten is one of the big ones, big culprits. And this is, I'm not talking about people with celiac disease. We know that people with celiac disease have a problem of gluten intolerance. This is an entity called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And these are people who don't have celiac disease. They may have the genes for celiac disease. They may not have the genes also. They don't have the antibodies for celiac disease at all. Because Dr. Travan, I'll find many of my patients tell me, my gastroenterologist says, I don't have celiac disease. I've been tested, so Mm -hmm. I can eat gluten. I said, no, 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 no. Your gastroenterologist is probably not familiar with NCGS, non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And there is a list of about 34 different symptoms which are related to gluten. So some of those people you're talking about could be those who have food sensitivities and gluten and dairy are some of the commonest ones. Soy, corn are some of the other ones. And dairy, again, some people are sensitive to milk, but cheese is okay or butter or ghee is fine for them. So we need to fix, so that is where we do an elimination diet. They eliminate a whole bunch of food and then they reintroduce them one by one. And grains are also sometimes very inflammatory for many of these people. Yes. Uh, yes. Okay. So now let's talk about overeating because we want to get to this food addiction yeah. or how that might fit in. Um, what's your experience with um, the sort of pathological overeating that can occur and how might that relate to any of the things you're talking about, n- nutritional deficiencies or whatnot? So one area is, and again, some of my patients, I ask them, I said, are you open to sharing your food pictures? Mm-hmm. Uh, she says, oh, I'm eating all the time. I said, you're eating all the time, but you know, what is the quantity of food that you eat? Because many a time, Dr. Tarman, I find that many of my patients who are dealing with you know excess body fat, they are not really eating more food in terms of quantity. They're eating poor quality food. Yes. So sometimes when they have shared their pictures, I realize they don't really overeat in terms of, you know, the food quantity, but what they will tell me, and maybe I was missing out on the food addiction here because before knowing about your work, I didn't know about food addiction. So what they they would tell me is, you know, when I get a box of like a box of chocolates, I cannot do without finishing the whole, you know, box of chocolates. Mm -hmm. So then I tell them, then who brings the chocolates home? I'm the one who buys them. So I say, okay, can you not? So how do you like, how do you come kind of troubleshoot this? So one of the things, and that applies to me as well. Like if someone places a bowl of uh, nice chocolates in front of me, even I can't resist it. So that would be overeating. But the thing is, how does that overeating happen? Is it because I see the food in front of me, then that's a different solution versus as you described in your book, you know, are you someone who gets into the car, goes to the nearest you know, chocolate store and buys the chocolate? Mm-hmm. That would be more in the lines of addictive behavior. So, yes, food is, and again, what I found, and again, this is not data, this is just anecdotal, mm-hmm. is when people eat a lot more of the processed carbohydrates yes. and all those things, they crave more of the same thing. And sometimes it's like they are stressed for various reasons and they'll kind of justify that. that okay, you know, I'm stressed and I'm going through all these challenges. It's okay for me to eat poorly for some time. So that is one, one area that I have found many of. Then my patients will tell me, I said, you know what, there's no judgment because I go through the same challenges that you go through, uh-huh. <laughs> you know. So why, where do you think you got off track? So they'll say, oh, you know, my friends invited me over and they made this. And then I realized that once I started eating that way, I couldn't resist that anymore. I had to keep on eating the same thing. And one of my friends describes that as gateway food, like, Yes. They were not eating that kind of food for a long time. Then they go to a party or something. And then, you know, a friend says, just eat this cake. I made this for you and blah, blah, blah. And that starts, I call the carb slide. <laughs> you know? okay. Then it ends up that the next day they're eating poorly and it just goes on. Okay. So. Now, one of the things about the paradigm of food addiction is that if we think about particular foods as acting as drugs, the person is seeking, it's actually not really about the food. It's about the effect that the food will give them. Yes. So sugar, and flours, uh, gluten or or not, give a particular 
feeling of numbing or something that helps them emotionally. And then once they start having that, like a drug, you want to keep taking that. So is there something in your platform that would help to help somebody with that? So obviously they have to stop, but they've got an urge. It's an inner itch because Mm -hmm. of the food. So they're going to stop the food. How do they manage? I don't know if you know the answer to this, but I guess like post-acute withdrawal, how how do they deal with the, you probably had this, you ask people to stop eating or start fasting and to go into ketosis. How do they survive that first few days of, it's not the hunger, it's the, or it's, it's the dope hunger. It's the, it's the soothing hunger. Yeah. So that, as you rightly pointed out, there is no simple answer to that. Now, Hmm. another area, which I again got to know of it fairly recently is from the work of Dr. Dana Small in Yale. So she looked at, so what she did is her her experiments are very interesting. So what she did is uh, she put people through a functional MRI machine and she gave them four different drinks, which were equally sweet, but they were sweetened with not sugar. They were sweetened with maltitol or some other maltodextrin, something like that. And what she found is when she put them into the MRI machine, that and her paper is called, I think, Rethinking Reward Pathways. So her this thing is that nice, the I brain like that. is asking for these nutrients. It can yeah. feel the sweetness, but it does not get the calories. Uh-huh. So that is probably and that her studies were done for on on sweetness. But again, this is my assumption. There is no I'm, I don't have any data to support that. My assumption is when people start craving more of the same food. It's probably the brain's way of asking for more nutrients, but it's not getting the nutrients and it's still looking for the nutrients. So I think that, you know, that cycle of getting that more. So as you rightly pointed out, it's not easy for everyone. Number one is they need support from the family if they're living with, with others at home. And usually some, it depends on what their family situation is. A lot of my PCOS patients particularly are relatively young adults and they still live with their, and in India, they still live with their parents. So I get, I said, who's the one who decides on food at home? Oh, my mother usually decides. I said, get your mother to the call because I need to talk to her because she should not, you know, get in your way when you're trying to make some changes. Uh And I've had colleagues whose daughters were getting into intermittent fasting and they sent me a message. Do you think it's okay or should I interfere? You know, Uh as long as she has support, you're fine. So one is the food atmosphere at home. Is it like, are you being made to feel like you're abnormal because you're eating something different compared to the rest of the family? And I usually tell them, I said, see, make it easy for everyone. All of you can eat the same way of eating real food. Mm -hmm. So if you want to do, all of you do that, that is the best way that would encourage your daughter because don't make it difficult for her like to use her willpower and, you know, force herself to eat differently while all of you are eating things that, you know, she's not supposed to eat. Okay. Wow. That's really good. We're getting low on time. So could you please... In a nutshell, if you had to give an advertisement about what you do, like you're doing optimal brain health, like so basically nutritional advice for optimal brain health, would that be a way to describe what you're doing right now? Like if somebody yes. wants to say, what does Shabna actually, if I were what to go to her, what would I get? Okay, thank you. So yes, nutrition is one of the areas, but basically what I do is help people with making therapeutic lifestyle changes. Because when we use the term lifestyle change, everyone says, oh, I know I have to exercise more and sleep better and eat better and all that. But how do you break it down? Number one, to things that will actually make a difference to you long term. So when it comes to brain health, there are three foundations I essentially talk about. First is optimal blood glucose levels Mm -hmm. or blood sugar levels, depending on what they call it. Second is optimal blood pressure levels. And the third is low levels of chronic systemic inflammation. And Dr. Tarman, as you know, all these three are impacted by, number one is food, but it is an anti-inflammatory lifestyle. So sleep is equally important. And, uh, you know, movement, like we spend a lot of time sitting continuously because of the nature of our work. Mm -hmm. But how do we interrupt continuous sitting? And what is appropriate for that person? It's someone who spends like a lot of time sitting at a customer desk. 
then definitely they need different solutions versus someone who's spending a lot of time watching tv you know <laughs> throughout the day so that is where we i customize the solutions for them then for example the other area is therapeutic supplementation so i use an acronym called semmt which is sleep eat move mind body interventions and therapeutic supplementation so yes basically you can say that i'm someone who helps with food and nutrition in relation to brain health but food is actually one of the most important components of everything about the brain and if i had just one message for everyone for yes. brain mood anything i would say prioritize eating protein okay okay and what about uh, compulsive overeating with that dr tarman i have not uh, that is not an area of my specialty i don't usually treat patients like that because number one i'm not trained in it yes and uh, so i let them i i don't deal with the very severe problems because right. most of my work is from i am in in alberta and my most yeah. of my patients are in india so okay. it's a little difficult to do some of the remote stuff unless they have a primary care doctor who okay. understands and you know all of that so but you you can probably appreciate and help the client or patient appreciate the standard american diet is problematic for optimal brain health and so to, to deal with their sugar addiction will also help their optimal brain health as well oh absolutely not just metabolic syndrome but no right. not just metabolic yeah. Yeah, uh, okay I, you know i know we just have a, a couple more minutes but can i can you just just ask one more question um uh how does eating sugar affect mood and you mentioned about alzheimer's but what about just general mood And thank you Dr. Tarman that's a great question so i had brought up this thing of relative hypoglycemia or reactive hypoglycemia yes. so sugar or food that becomes sugar all the flours and all the stuff the white stuff yes <laughs> so what happens is when someone eats more of the sugary stuff or the processed carbohydrate carbohydrate raises blood glucose levels high yes. and then there's a dramatic fall so when that fall happens I don't know the exact biochemistry that goes on what a lot of people experience is dramatic change in mood they feel more anxious they get right. panicky so sugar and things that become sugar make them feel that way and the unfortunate problem is that is something that is happening at that point so if they go to the doctor and they get the blood glucose levels checked or the hemoglobin a1c levels checked the doctor will say it's normal you don't have diabetes but this is not diabetes we are talking about and then yeah. they are like oh it's just a you know just take these anti antidepressant medications or anti anxiety medications and that is what is going to help you but probably food is the bigger solution than just one more prescription pill so sugar does that you know and then again they feel hungry so then they snack on something sugary again you know blood glucose levels go up and then this whole you know hangry monster as i call it this you know the teeth yeah, of the exactly. yes so so getting out of the sugar addiction cycle will also get you out of the yes. mood the mood yes. um, ups and downs as well yes. okay so that's what you do now uh, what is next for you oh <laughs> thank you dr tarman so i want to build an online brain fitness program oh because uh, the biggest problem we face now is the high uh, you know prevalence of alzheimer's disease yes. and as i mentioned earlier it, alzheimer's doesn't start like when we are 55 or 60 years old it starts 20 to 30 years before and particularly since you know i have moved from india which is a developing country to a country like canada where healthcare is covered and as you know recent statistics showed that in countries in first world countries dementia incidence is a prevalence is kind of stabilizing but it's going it's getting really bad in developing countries so mm. countries like india and other asian countries mm. so no one is doing much about brain health people don't even go through a brain assessment so that is my next uh, that is what i'm looking at to be able to do a sort of a cognitive assessment and as you know a cognitive assessment would involve neuropsychiatric testing brain yeah. imaging but i'm looking for simpler online solutions and right now there are a lot of companies who are developing online tools where we can do a, a cognitive test without going through you know you need a, a highly specialized trained person to do a neuropsych assessment or brain imaging as well okay. first is to know what the problem is and then of course there are so many different solutions and using the tiny habits method that i mentioned i trained right. as a coach 
Are you thinking how to use the tiny habits method to improve number one blood glucose and the other thing that you know I call myself a blood pressure evangelist (laughs) because Uh. hypertension, as you know, is very poorly controlled all over the world because people don't have symptoms. And it is possible to control hypertension much better than we are doing today, which would involve, of course, prescription medications as well as lifestyle. And insulin resistance is one of the commonest problems of primary hypertension, as you know. So getting a handle on hypertension and diabetes would be two of the big risk factors for cognitive decline down the line. Mm-hmm. So that is what, what gets me up and running now. Okay, good. Thank you. So we have one last question, and that is what we call our signature question, which is if you could tell a younger version of yourself, now I'm going to let you choose. If you could tell a younger version of yourself something about sugar or food addiction, uh, what would it be? And if you say, I don't know, because that's a new concept, then about optimal brain health. So you decide. Uh, if you could tell a younger version of yourself about one of those two things, what would it be? Oh, uh, well, um, very, you got me thinking. <laughs> My younger <laughs> self, I would definitely say that the importance of food and particularly the importance of movement. Yes, exercise we all know, but when I was younger, I never focused on movement. I spent a lot of time, of course, sitting in the clinic because, but then of course, uh, the other, this thing as well. But the import, how important food is in our life is not something I knew until I got you know trained in nutrition. And food addiction is something, Dr. Tarman, I have to thank you. That is something very new for me. I am sure there were a lot of people who had food addiction back then when I was treating my patients in OBGY and I had no way of knowing it. Yes. Yes. And you know, the useful thing about knowing about it now is it may explain why some of your people just didn't take your advice. Yes. Uh, And another area I think, Dr. Darman, which I have, I'm going to explore now is I think a lot of people with diabetes actually have food addiction. I think you're absolutely right. And they are missing on that because... Diabetes itself makes life difficult and yeah. cognition and everything. It's like a vicious cycle. Yes. So I, you know, I, I'm, I'm convinced that diabetes is the physical and food addiction yes. is the mental and that they're hand in hand. No yes. research to show that, but one is insulin resistance yes. and one is dopamine resistance. It's, yes. There's a resistance pattern. And uh, once the person is, is better on the, the food addiction, their metabolic syndrome resolves because they're not eating sugar. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's great. We should collaborate on this. Yes, I think we should. Thank you, Dr. Darwin. Yes, thank you. Thank you Wonderful so much for, talking for you. Uh, Thank you very much. Very much appreciate it. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.